When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. Hey, what's up everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the show. We will dive into today's interview in just a moment. We are headed back to Texas today. It's going to be another fun interview. I think you will all enjoy it. Just a quick reminder for all of you, gumleafusa.com. Awesome pair of boots. Go get yourself some and use promo code PU. 2018, PU2018, gets free shipping on boots from gumleafusa.com. Check them out. I've got a pair. They're awesome. Also, Shotcam, 
the world's most powerful shotgun camera. Go to shotcam.com and use promo code Project Upland. That is one word, Project Upland, to save $75 off your order of a shotgun. And this week, we are going to take a quick break from the Project Upland gear giveaway. Had a minor hiccup with our supplier, and I haven't been able to get the gear out to the previous week's winner. So I want to get that all squared away before we award another one. We will get back to that as soon as possible, but continue to share the podcast episodes. Leave us ratings, leave us reviews, and subscribe to the podcast for your chance to win Project Upland gear. All right, today's interview, as I mentioned, we are headed back to Texas today, Alpine, Texas, to be exact. We talked to John Hubble last week. He was in East Texas. We travel west this week towards Alpine, Texas, and we talked to Ryan O'Shaughnessy of West Texas Quail Outfitters. Ryan is a college professor. He is educated in wildlife biology. He's got a very cool story. He was actually born in Zimbabwe and raised in Botswana. Eventually, he made it to the U.S. We talk about that a little bit. He now runs a quail hunting guiding operation in West Texas, and we talk all about quail and his dogs and hunting in Texas. It's a very cool episode. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Welcome, Ryan O'Shaughnessy, to the Project Dublin Podcast. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you this evening? I'm good, Nick. Thanks for uh, having me on on this uh, Friday afternoon. Yes, absolutely. It's my pleasure to have you on the Project Upland Podcast. We're happy to have you, and we are going to have some fun talking Upland bird hunting. As you mentioned, it is Friday evening. I don't have uh, I don't have a cold beverage or anything poured next to me yet, but uh, my fridge is only an arm's length away. So maybe I'll maybe I'll reach reach over there when you're talking about quail hunting in one of these uh, interims. Well, it sounds like you've got your office set up a little more uh, conveniently than I do. I'm, I'm hoping my wife will hear me talking about a cold beer and have one rushed in. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you know, the the guys at Project Upland, they like me to record record one of these every couple of weeks or so, so I've had uh I've had some time to prepare and, and make sure the fridge is <laughs> the fridge is nearby. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so, I know that you are down in Texas, but I don't specifically know where you're at. Is that correct? That's correct. So um, I am based in Texas, and uh, we always say it's far west Texas. So it's that little horn of Texas that that juts out. Um, we're about three hours south uh, along the border, uh, south of El Paso. So the, the the little town is Alpine. Alpine, Texas, is our uh, home base. Okay, cool. I'm actually. Uh... A little bit distracted. I'm pulling it up. I like to have the map in front of me. And uh, funny enough, I I interviewed somebody. The podcast hasn't been released yet, but it probably will later this week. I interviewed somebody from East Texas on Tuesday. So we went from uh, went from East Texas. Now we're in far West Texas. Very cool. Excellent. Covering the state. Exactly. Now I've never been to Texas. And I don't know a whole lot of people from Texas other than a few cousins uh, that that used to possibly still live in Houston. But you don't exactly sound like somebody that is from Texas. Am I wrong? 
<laughs> well, no, you're not wrong there. Um, I always tell people that I'm from uh, deep South Texas, um, real South Texas. Um, I was uh, born and raised in, in Zimbabwe, in, in Southern Africa, and um, met a woman, and uh, she brought me over to the States. And uh, from there, done a bit of a tour. We started off in Florida, moved up to Illinois for a few years, and uh, now I've uh, landed up in Texas. Wow, very interesting. Was she? Did she have roots in Texas? No, she's uh, from Florida originally, um, and uh, she was just doing some work out in uh, in Botswana. Uh, my family moved across to from Zimbabwe to Botswana in the late eighties, and uh, she was just doing some work out there, and we we hit it off, and uh, the rest is history. Wow, that's really something. That's that's very cool, and I I will admit I cheated a little bit because the. The gentleman that suggested I have you on the podcast, he did the he did allude to the fact that you were from Botswana, and he uh, he he gave he gave uh, gave me a little hint, but I figured we would share that with the rest of the listeners. So very cool. So that naturally leads to my next question, which would be: Was upland hunting part of your history before winding up in America and slash Texas? Yeah, Nick. Um, so my, my family, we've um, gosh, we've been in the, the the safari business for for as long as I can remember, um, and even with with, with the, you know the plethora of big game that that we've always had available, um, I, I think it's always been the dogs that have attracted me to upland bird hunting. Um, you know, a lot of my friends think I'm crazy, but um, chasing upland birds is is always been my favorite thing to do um you can give me a choice between that and anything else and i'm always going to load my dogs up and hit the road to chase upland birds um it's just always always been my passion and uh, still still loving every minute of it that's very cool and that's uh that's that's why we wanted to have you on the project upland podcast you fit uh, you fit in with the rest of us very nicely being being that that is your main passion so so that's cool so the safaris in Africa, of course, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. Any any bird hunting in Africa before you wound up over here? Nick, yeah, we, we've been very lucky um, in Africa. It, it's kind of six of one and a half a dozen of the other. Um, and, and I'll explain that. We've got such a wide range of species of birds out there. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different species of uh, Franklin that you can hunt. Obviously, um, we've got the guinea fowl, wild guinea fowl down there. Gosh, there's sand grouse. I think there's three different species of sand grouse, two different species of quail, seven different species of dove, I think. Um, so you can very much spend your whole year um, upland bird hunting. Um, our uh, main season is six months long. Um, when, when that closes, funny enough, the, the, the sand grouse season opens. So like I say, we, we were very fortunate when I was growing up because you could, you could go wing shooting just about every day for the whole year if, if you planned it right. Wow. That's absolutely, that's, that's very cool. I, I didn't know, I, I didn't know the extent, uh, of the seasons or anything like that. I think the only person we've had on the podcast to talk about, Bird hunting in Africa, just jogging my memory, would be AJ Durosa. He was on episode number one, and he actually 
he, he made a trip to Africa. He did a little bit of hunting. I know he hunted Franklin. I'm not sure what else, but he talked about it a little bit, but I, I really didn't know it was that extensive. Can you, just because, just kind of my curiosity, compare and contrast a little bit the the upland hunting between Africa and, and what you now know here in, in the States. Sure, sure. Sure, Nicole. I mean, and that's that. That's like I was saying. It's six of one, half a dozen of the other. You know, on the one hand, we've got all the, the a huge variety of of different upland game birds that you can pursue every weekend. Um, but the flip side of that coin is that um, the, the sport, I would say, definitely isn't as as developed as it is here in the U.S. Um, you know, I had um, um, a couple of Weimaraners in, in Botswana and I kind of just stumbled along through training them and, and kind of thought I had a couple of good dogs until until I moved over here and I got exposed to the sport over here and, and became aware of all the, the, the resources available to, to upland bird hunters. Um, you know, not just from a dog point of view, but from an equipment point of view. Um Everything that we buy over there, be it a shotgun, be it a bird vest, we've got to have it imported from outside of the country. Um, and and so you can certainly be limited on, on what you can get um, over there. But that's always balanced with the, with the wide variety of birds. And uh, actually, it's pretty low pressure, come to think of it. I know the areas that I would always go um, upland hunting – I can't ever remember seeing another hunter out there. And and so, you know, it's kind of nice. You walk around all afternoon chasing Franklin and you don't see anybody else out there. So it's it's, it's kind of special. Yeah, absolutely. I'd imagine. I mean, certainly, certainly expansive, expansive continent and territory. And, you know, I'm not sure of all the ins and outs of, of how the lands work, but it sounds like the, the resource is incredible. So that's very cool. And that, uh, you know, obviously we talked about you. You wound up here in the states, so you're in Texas now. Were you were you bird yeah. hunting in were you bird hunting in Florida and Illinois prior to landing in Texas? Um, so Florida, I wasn't. Um, Florida was the uh, the first state that that I landed in, and um, we were getting all my um, my immigration status sorted out. Um, after about eight months, uh, we moved up to Illinois um, to, to, to do my PhD, and I did do some, some upland bird hunting there. Um, about two and a half hours north of us, there was a, uh, a state park that had a wild population of, um, of pheasant, and you could go in on a lottery system to, to go and hunt those birds. So we, we would always do that every year. Um, we had another little state park about 30 minutes from us, but they, they were pen raised pheasant, but you know what? It was, it was great still to get out on the weekend and chase those birds. Um, but I would say most of the hunting that I did up there was, um, was waterfowl. Um, the problem with waterfowl, <laughs> particularly during winter is that it's cold. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I much, I much prefer uh, keeping dry and keeping out of, uh, out of the wetlands and, and, uh, chasing quail down here in Texas. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you're talking to a guy from Minnesota, so I certainly, certainly know cold. We don't have it. We don't have it right. the worst here in, <laughs> in North America. That's for sure. But I make no claims to have that, but but uh, I know that that you've had some some cool weather down in Texas this year for sure. Even just talking to 
Uh, John, the gentleman I interviewed uh, earlier this week, you've had some cold temps down there. Yeah, we have. We have. Um, you know, I like where we are because, uh, funny enough, we're we're in the mountains of West Texas. I always say that, and I get a couple of raised eyebrows. But um, uh, we do have mountains in Texas. I think our uh, highest peak out here where we are is is a little under nine thousand feet. Um, but the reason I bring that up is is that it really has um, it, it tempers the climate. We 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 don't have the really, really cold temperatures that you might find in some other parts of the state or the really, really hot temperatures. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty mild, um, easy climate to live in. That sounds, uh, that sounds like my kind of client. I like that. Uh, I like that, that those moderate, moderate temperatures, <laughs> as, as you say, what, what kind of, what kind of high, I mean, what's your temps like right now, you know, be it, uh, the end of April. Um, right now, we're, we're probably in the low 80s, um, midday highs at the moment. Um, you, you know, through winter, um, I'm always watching my kennel. We'll have a we'll have a couple of nights that will dip below freezing, um, but it's it, it's nothing too major. Okay, gotcha. All right, well that's that's a that's a pretty good backstory, and and so now down in Texas, you are the owner i believe slash operator of west texas quail outfitters is that a is that a sole proprietorship or you have you have others involved with that nope it's a it's a, it's a limited liability corporation and it is uh, just my my wife and i that uh, run the business okay excellent and so how long has west texas quail outfitters been in operation uh, well, that's a good question. I've got to think. We moved down here five years ago, and so it was four years ago that we uh, kicked off our first season uh, with West Texas Quail Outfitters. Um, we just uh, noticed a, uh, a bit of a, a gap in the market out here as, as we got to know landowners. Um, you know, everybody was and still is very, very heavily focused on mule deer and ordad hunting and um you know like we said in the the introduction you know those those species are cool and everything but i'd rather chase quail and uh got chatting with um a guy that i knew and i said man uh, his name is bill and i said bill heck man you got to have guys calling you up all the time wanting to to come quail hunting and um, he said, he said, yeah, Ryan, I do, but um, I don't have the time between running the, the mule deer and the ordad hunting. I don't have the time to, to, to mess with the quail hunting. And um, that was basically the start of the company. You, you know, I looked at Bill. He, I think, could tell what I was thinking. And um, I said, well, um, how, about, how about I start a, a quail guiding service and uh, we'll take it from there. And um, it has just exploded, um, so it's, it's been fantastic. That's excellent. That's great to hear, Ryan. And I think you you know you've done what what many many successful business people have: I identify a, a gap or a problem in the marketplace and come up with a solution for it. So that's very cool. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, you know, I've got to be honest. I think uh, you know, too, we, we were just in, in in the right place at the right time. Um, you, you know, quail numbers were on the upswing, um, 
and um, you know, by and large, I think a lot of a lot of hunters are fickle. <laughs> you know, they they like to hunt when there's a lot of game out there, but don't like to hunt when there's when there's not. And uh, I think the timing and everything just worked out. And um, yeah, like I say, it's it's been one heck of a ride since then. Excellent. Yeah, we we see that. We certainly see that. You know, with with upland upland bird populations and numbers and and demand i guess kind of if you want to call it that sort of rises and falls with with populations and that's a interesting dynamic so so when you decided to open up shop was what was what was the first season like what was the growth curve for west texas quail outfitters how are you doing today are you you booked all season long <laughs> yeah uh nick that's a great question i know when 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 we were looking at at starting the business, um, um, I always say um, my, my grown up job is I, I I'm a professor at the local university, and so when we started this, I, I was basically just looking at the weekends um, during quail season when I'd be available to guide. And my wife and I were talking about it, and, and we looked at the calendar, and we we're like, okay, great, so we've got. Uh, 17 weekends during the season that we would be able to sell guided hunts. And before we um, we sold our first hunt, we were kind of saying, well, it would be great to sell a quarter of those hunts. If we can sell four, maybe five weekends in our first year in business, we'll be happy. Well, I, th- I think we sold something like 23 hunts that first year. <laughs> and then... Uh, <laughs> It, and, and we, we've been fully booked every every season since then. Um, you know, the growth curve has has been exponential. Um, we're fully booked for this coming year. Um, heck, I actually uh, sold a, a hunt for the 2019-2020 season this week. So um, d- demand is high, which is which is great for uh, for for people like us in this in this business. That is excellent, Ryan. Congratulations. That sounds like sounds like West Texas Quail Outfitters is is uh, doing a very good job. You're you're keeping you got happy clients and and future bookings. That's that's where you want to be. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Nick. Um, uh, like I said, I mean, uh, outside of of just having um, good quail numbers, um, I, I think we've we've also just there's there seems to be a tremendous demand in the market right now for for wild birds um you know true wild bird hunting um and we're just lucky to be in an area where where we can offer that um you know guys always ask us well heck you know do you do any sort of sort of management or or do you have a feed program for these birds out here and and we say no um you know, we, we, we do have, I guess, technically it's a management program in that, you know, we don't hunt small coveys. We don't want to over-harvest birds from from any particular covey. You know, we want to take a handful of birds and then move on. Um, but outside of that, no, we don't do any feed or anything. We, we've really um, tried to market ourselves as a 100% wild bird hunting operation. Um which uh, I must say, it, uh, it it does come with some consequence. I think we're probably walking anywhere from ten to fourteen miles in a day on on a typical hunt, and wow. so uh, you 
you are working for these these little scaled quail, I must say. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's interesting to hear you say that about wild birds because I, I, I get that sense myself in that there is sort of a there's a drive for people to hunt wild birds, and oftentimes I wonder if you know it's maybe selection bias just because of me being involved with Project Upland and sort of the people that I know and follow. But but to hear to hear an outside perspective say that same thing, I think. You know, I I feel like there's there's really a lot going on in the upland hunting world, and and certainly I'm I'm, you know, a good good ways away from from Texas, and I'm I'm disconnected with what's going on down there. But it's but it's interesting to hear your perspective. So tell us about actually before I jump into that, I wanted to ask you, Ryan. You said you mentioned you're a professor at the local university. Is that completely unrelated to quail hunting, or are you a biology <laughs> professor or anything like that? So my, my training, my, my PhD is in wildlife biology, um, but so since I've been here, I've um, diversified and um, I've got it into to business, got in a degree in, um, in, in business, and so I, I teach mainly ag business classes, um, but the, the graduate students that I mentor are all wildlife students, and they're working on projects, anything from, from quail to um, to ordad sheep running around the, the hills out here. Excellent. Very cool. So it sounds like, yeah, you are you are traditionally educated in, in, in wildlife. And I, I would imagine you have some interesting perspectives to share with, with some of your your clients. Anything I, I mean, I know I know enough to know that that quail have seen their ups and downs, especially in Texas, and the last couple of years have been very good. So can you speak to can you speak to what's what's going on right now with with various species of quail in Texas and where you know without uh, obviously asking you to make any guarantees where do you see it going Sure Nick it's, yeah it's an interesting question um the you know obviously Texas is is probably primarily famous for for bob white um, and I hate saying it as a biologist, but obviously uh, precipitation, uh, rainfall drives everything. If you've got got good rains and, and good growth of forbs and your grasses, which are producing a lot of insects, you, you're going to have good quail numbers. Um, Texas, just like everywhere else, um, we fall victim to, to habitat loss. Um, you know, I'll probably have a few people at least disagree with me, but... You can sum up all these other factors that that people um, talk about. You, you know, your your fire ants and disease and predation and everything. But the the overwhelming reason for for population declines is is habitat loss. Um, heck, you you only need to fly over the area in an airplane to to realize that. Um, having said that. We've been lucky with our desert quail, like your scaled quail and your gambles, in that the areas that you find those birds, like West Texas, uh, or far West Texas at least, um, we're still really undeveloped out here. Um, you know, on average, the, the, the ranches out here are anywhere from thirty to 50,000 acres in size. And so you don't have a tremendous amount of habitat change happening out there. Um, and I think that's really helped, particularly the desert quail populations, to, to temper themselves. Um, but again, precipitation drives that. Um, 
not this past season, the, the, the season before when we were breaking record numbers for quail. Heck, I think we had a, a two years of average rainfall, which just helped those populations to explode. Um, you know, we were probably pushing anywhere from 30 to 40 coveys of scaled quail a day. And those coveys, Nick, I, I, I need to look at my, my GPS where I store all the data. Um, but those coveys were anywhere from, from 20 to 40 birds on average. I mean, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Wow, that, that is absolutely. What about what about the eye worm? Is is that something that's just specific to Bob White? No, um, unfortunately not. Um, a, a colleague of mine at the, at the university who who heads the um, the game bird program. Um, He's starting to initiate a um, an eye worm study out here in far west Texas, and so he's uh, he's contracted me to bring in a whole bunch of birds from the from the season, the hunting season. But we have found eye worms in scaled quail. Um, again, you, you need to think about the biology of of not just the bird but the parasite too. Um, I think, and I hope I'm not wrong on this, but I think we're going to find far less of a problem in these desert quail because of the dry conditions. Um, those parasites, to complete their life cycle, they obviously need to be shed from the bird and the feces. With it being very hot and dry out here, you, you typically find that a lot of those parasite eggs will dry up and senesce before they can get into another bird. And, and so the, the, the dry conditions, um, you know, this arid Western um, um, climate is, is better for, um, for parasite control. Um, I, I want to just stress that it's, it's better. You know, it doesn't eliminate parasites, um, but it, it can be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of just dropped the eye worm on the conversation and, and the project up on audience. And <laughs> I really, I really don't know a lot about it. And you, you obviously provided some good insights there, but could you kind of just give us, you know, it, it just a 10,000 foot level. Has it always, has it always been there, been a problem? Is it a new problem? And then what kind of, what kind of threat is it to an individual quail, you know, how does it lead to a quail's demise and then, you know, at a, at a more population level? Sure. Um, Nick, all, all I can tell you is, is just what I know from, from conversations with a colleague of mine, uh, Dale Rollins, who's, who's done a heck of a lot of uh, research into this. Um, you know, getting to your first question of, of whether it's a new problem or an old problem, that, that, that's a good question. Um, I think we're far more aware of the problem now. Um, so it, it's a little easier to, to detect because we know what we're looking for, if that makes sense. Um, if, if you, you had to put me on the, in the hot seat, I would say, yeah, it's probably a little more of a problem now just because we we're dealing with habitat loss, right? So, We've, we've really concentrated these birds into small pockets of good habitat out on the landscape. Um, and, and so when you, when you have an eye worm problem or any parasite problem and you've got a high concentration of birds, 
it, it, it's going to explode in that population. Um, you know, in the past, when these birds were, were spread out over vast distances and huge landscapes, it's probably less of a problem because um, that, that parasite isn't able to travel between populations as easily. Um, I'm just trying to think. Uh, what what was your your last question there, Nick? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. No, I th- I think I, I appreciate you sharing that, Ryan. And certainly, uh, my certainly my intent is not to put you in the hot seat. I, I just I appreciate your insight, and I and oh, certainly yeah. certainly uh, certainly know more about it than than I. Um, you know, and it's actually I've heard I've heard similar things stated about. You know, there's some current there's some concern right now with the rough grouse in the northern states and West Nile virus and and I've heard right. different different biologists say, you know, the less birds you have and the more concentrated they are onto smaller pieces of land, the more the more threat, you know, any specific threat right. actually, the more danger it poses to that population. Whereas if you if you take your magnifying glass to the Great Lake states, we tend to have larger tracts of forest, bigger expanses of land, healthier Absolutely. populations of birds, and they're better able to fend that stuff off. Now, not, yeah. being, a, not being a biologist, I won't, I won't say anything more <laughs> than that, but uh, circling well, back to I, the quail, my, my, well, I was going to say, I guess, go ahead. You know, the, the analogy that I always use, um, um, you know, it is, is from a hunting perspective, you, you know, if you've got a thousand acres out there and you've got a covey of quail, um, you know, it might be pretty difficult to find that one covey on a thousand acres. If you then drop that thousand acres to say a hundred acres, the chances of you finding that covey are going to go up quite drastically. It's yes. it's the same thing with with parasites. You know, if if these birds have got a thousand acres that they can spread themselves over and and use for feeding and 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 nesting and whatnot, and then you cut that down to a hundred acres. Well, heck, there's there's just a lot more contact between those those birds and a lot more opportunity for that parasite to be passed from from one individual to another. Certainly, yeah, absolutely, that makes that makes sense. So my 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 last question on the eye worm, and then we'll we'll put that this one to bed for now. But it was I was just curious, how does it how does it is it lethal to a quail, and and how does that occur? <laughs> So, um, you know, the, the, the eye worm, just like any other parasitic worm, um, individuals get it from feeding. Um, you know, they, they're, they're picking up um, eggs that have been passed through the feces of another bird. Um, you know, so they might be out in a certain area that they like to feed in and while well, birds are eating and they're pooping, right? And so that, that parasite gets spread around. Um in terms of the lethality, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, certainly under very, very high parasite loads, yeah, those those parasites would be directly killing the bird. I think what happens more often than not, though, um, you know, these are called eye worms for a reason. You, you can often find them by by looking at the eye. Um, and so, what what I think the, the the evidence has been showing is that these birds are, are essentially going blind because these worms are infesting the eye and so they're less able to detect predators and so I guess you could say that 
they're dying indirectly. The worm is causing them not to be able to detect predators efficiently. Got it. Makes sense. Understood. I know. I know more now than I did five minutes ago, Ryan. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, that's that's good. I, I, I always like to uh, um, like to think that I'm educating people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, let's let's transition a little bit. Earlier, you mentioned Weimariners. You mentioned uh, yep. Weimariners dogs. Is that what you right. currently run today in Texas? Nick, no. Um, and, and that is, um, don't get me wrong, I, I still uh, absolutely love Weimaraners. I, I do still have one Weimaraner, a, a female, uh, Savannah. She's uh, probably five or six years old now. Um, but most of the dogs in my kennel are English pointers. Um, but I, I do also have a couple of GSPs and a Brittany. And um, the, the reason why I've transitioned away from, from Weimaran is certainly is, is nothing to do with the bird finding ability. It, it's, it's really been a function of the climate out here. Um, because that Weimaran is about twice the size of, of an English pointer, I've just found out here they tend to, to tire faster than the, than the smaller breed um, pointing dogs. Um, and, and yeah, so I've just transitioned my kennel over the years to, to more pointers. Certainly. Yeah. That's not, not a, not an uncommon breed for the Southern more arid climates and with, with, you know, the experience as at least, at least what I see and I read about. So not, not surprising to hear that, but you did mention you've got some GSPs and some Brittany. So you're, you're not necessarily someone that's loyal, you know, blindly loyal to one specific breed. How did the uh, how did some of the other dogs find their way into your kennel? It's it's interesting. <laughs> Nick, my my wife hates it when I go to a breeder <laughs> when I go to a, a dog training facility um, because um, I, I have a real issue saying no when somebody offers me a good looking pointing dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're not so, alone there. I, I think. I think every time I've told my wife, oh, I'm going out and I'm going to go and get one dog, I come back with two. And uh, <laughs> um, that's, <laughs> that's certainly been it. Although um, the, the Brittany um, used to belong to a, to a very good friend of mine. And um, he just, um, and, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on which way you look at it, he, he changed jobs. And um, he was just unable to keep to keep the Brittany. Um, he just uh, felt like the dog wasn't getting worked enough. And so he called me up and said, hey, uh, would, would you like Mickey? And um, I'd hunted over Mickey and he's a, a great dog. And so that's that's how Mickey um, came came to uh, to find a home in, in my kennel. Um, but, yeah, the others have just been through, like I say, me going out and uh wanting to buy a pointer and the guy said hey well just ha have a quick look at this gsp too and uh, <laughs> you know put some on a bird and i'm, I'm sold so <laughs> oh that's funny ryan uh okay so now apologies if you mentioned this earlier but do you have do you have some do you have some land there right at home at the kennel do you have and really what i'm getting at is 
Do you have the ability to get the dogs on wild birds in the off season? Kind of how does your how does your training uh, play out over the over the course of a year? Yeah, great, Nick. Good good question. So um, we don't have any any you know big um, swathes of land that we own, but fortunately for us, um, you know if you if you're looking at at Alpine on Google Earth. Um, we're just really lucky that we're a real small town. There's only about 5,000 people here. And we are surrounded by these huge, beautiful ranches. Um, and we've just become fortunate that we've built up a, a really good reputation and friendship with, with a lot of these ranches where the guys have, have opened up their gates to us for, for me to run and train my dogs. Um, again, quail numbers have been good. Um, and, and so when I go out in the evenings to exercise the dogs, we are pretty much always finding coveys. Um, and, and so it's, yeah, I wouldn't really say it's training in the true sense of the word because my dogs are able to just get on wild birds a few times a week throughout the off season. Um, and it just, keeps them sharp um, you know obviously if there's some some little things you know, you know steadiness that I need to work on we'll do that but we've just been blessed that we can do that on wild birds and I haven't had to to raise pen raised birds excellent yeah I think uh, that's I was that's what I was mainly curious about and and I believe there are a lot of people that would that would uh, think your method is is perfectly sound in that in that wild birds tend to make bird dogs and the more right. uh, sp especially a uh, number of number of contacts over the course of time certainly is is a is typically a pretty good indicator it will it will take genetic potential and and uh, let that dog you know express that genetic potential Absolutely. And, you know, we, we have a, a pigeon coop out back. Uh, I don't have any pigeons in it at the moment, but certainly with with really young dogs, I'll always get a couple of pigeons and, and use the pigeons on the young dogs. But my philosophy um, um, when I've gone out and bought new young dogs I always just try to run them with the old dogs. You, you know, I figure that old dog is going to teach that young dog way more efficiently than I could ever teach him. Um, you, you know, I can always do the basics, like I said, you know, work on on woe-breaking the dog and, and getting that dog steady and stylish, but but I can't teach him to find a bird like that old experienced dog can. Certainly. How do you like to how do you like to run your dogs specifically related to you know number of dogs on the ground at one time? I'd imagine there's there's pretty good chunk of ground to cover. Do you like to have more than one dog down, or how do you like to operate? Yeah, Nick. Um, so from uh, checking the the distance that the dogs cover on on, on a regular hunt. Heck, these dogs are probably covering around 35 miles each um, when, when we're out there. And so typically I'll, I will take six dogs with me and I will have two dogs on the ground at any given time. When we get back to, to the rig, I'll rest those two and I'll drop another two. Um, and, and I'll just rotate through those six dogs on, on a hunt, um, which gives them all plenty of opportunity, gets them plenty of exercise and, and still keeps them them fresh and rested for, for the next covey. 
Perfect. And so how many do you have a, you know, obviously every, obviously every day is different, but will, will each of those dogs see the ground twice in a day? Will you, you know, will you, will you hit three different spots, six different spots? Where does that typically fall? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, gosh, no, it'll probably be more than that. Um, you know, we, we, we cover a lot of ground on, on a, on any given day. And I'm, I'm just trying to work it out from a covey point of view. Um, you, you know, even this past season, I think we're probably moving about 20 to 25 coveys in a day. Um, and so, you know, if you average it, I would say each dog is probably pointing probably seven or eight coveys in, in a day. Um, it, it just depends on the location. Um, usually, usually what I'll do is, um, so I've got a, um, a, a custom built, uh, Polaris Ranger with, with my dog boxes and, and a water bowser on, on the back. Um, and, and how I do it out here on these big ranches is, is I hunt the waters. So I'll drive to a big, uh, you know, a, a water tank, let the dogs out and then we'll work that area around that water tank for an hour or so, depending on, on what we're finding. Um, and I do that for two reasons. Uh, chances are there's going to be at least one covey somewhere in that area around that tank. And, uh, number two, the dogs can get in that tank and cool down when we get back to, to the hunting rig. Certainly a good segue there in that I was wanted to ask you a little bit how you go about targeting specific habitat so obviously the, the water tank is one and kind of work that beyond that do you have do you have other objectives other things you're looking for do you do you let the dogs take you where where they where they know the birds are that kind of thing yeah nick so um you know over the years we, we've been pretty consistent on the properties that we've been hunting and so you know you just build up that sort of institutional knowledge you, you know where the good areas are and the not so good areas are um and and so usually i'll just um um head to to a spot that i've, I've come to know over the years has held birds um, like I say, to me, the key out here in the desert is water. If, if you've got water, you're going to find birds somewhere in that area. Um, when we get to, to a spot, you know, let's say like an earthen tank, um, and I let the dogs out. Yeah, I very much let the dogs dictate where we're going. Um, you know, I'm sure you, you know from your own experience, you always trust your dog, right? Um, I've, yes. I've made the mistake a couple of times when I've thought, nope, you know what, that dog's wrong. I know where the birds are, and, and I've been wrong every time. <laughs> that, that dog knows. Um, so, yeah, we'll just follow the dogs. You know, if they're working scent, great. Let's try to get up on those dogs and, and hope that they lock up on point. Yeah, absolutely the case. I've I've had my fair share of of what was I what was I thinking moments and not trusting the dog and yeah they are they are right many more times than we are and so like you said <laughs> trust, trust the dog. So you're out there you're out there guiding. You got every weekend booked up, Ryan. Do you ever get a chance to do you ever get a chance to carry the gun yourself? 
<laughs> you know, on, on occasion I do, um, you know, more often than not, um, um, uh, clients of mine will, will, will tell me, hey, you know what, pick up the shotgun, come and hunt with us. Um, it, it, it depends on how many guys I've got with me, um, you know, between watching the guns and watching the dogs and watching where those birds are, are flushing to, um, you, you know, a lot of times it's just easier not to carry the gun, Nick. Um, but I've got to be honest, you know, the, the real enjoyment for me is, is watching those dogs. Um, you know, I still say it to this day. I, I don't know how anybody can come out hunting with me, watch a pointing dog lock up on point. I mean, that, that quintessential point where that dog's nose is, is twitching and the muscles are quivering and, I don't know how anybody can witness that and, and not go home and buy themselves a pointing dog, you know. Um, but but I do. I, on occasion, I do get to to break out the uh, the twenty eight gauge and, um, and and shoot some birds myself. Excellent. Yeah, I know. I know the know what you're talking about. I've done a done a little a little volunteer guiding really uh, in, in the past few years. And it, you know, it depends on, on the people, but oftentimes, you know, they'll encourage you to carry the gun. And like you said, it's at that point, it's almost a, it's a really nice opportunity where you can kind of sit back, relax and watch your dog work, watch somebody else shoot a bird over it. I mean, heck, sometimes that's, that's even, even more fun. Uh, you know, it can be, can be very enjoyable. You mentioned the 28 gauge. Tell me more. Um, a friend of mine um, um, actually uh, gave me this this little 28 gauge, and um, Nick, I've got to be honest with you, I, I really wish he hadn't, um, <laughs> because every other shotgun um, in my gun safe um, is is a 12 gauge, and since uh, this buddy of mine um, gave me this 28 gauge, it is the only shotgun I will carry now. Um, it's just a beautiful little um, Beretta Silver Pigeon, a little over and under, and I absolutely love um, hunting with that. Um, you know, people always ask me all the time, you know, shot size important and everything, and uh, yeah, in my opinion, it, it is. I, I use sixes. I shoot sixes through through modified chokes, um, and it, it seems to get the business done. Um you know, I made the mistake of, of thinking, oh, heck, I'll take one of my 12 gauges out on the last day of the season. And boy, I regretted it because, uh, you know, it's three or four pounds heavier than uh, than that little 28 gauge. So the, the rest of my shotguns, unfortunately, are just uh, gathering dust in the uh, in the gun cabinet right now. <laughs> I've, I've, I've carried a 28 gauge a little bit. I don't own one myself, but I, I know, I know many people that have one and I think they, they tend to have that effect on people that they, uh, they lead to their other guns gathering dust. Right. Right. And I mean, you know, but my dad, um, years ago, he, um, he, he was kind enough. He, um, he, he gave me a Parazzi, you know, which is this fantastic shotgun. I mean, it's probably worth yes. 10 times what this this little Beretta is. But you know what? I, I open that cabinet and I reach for that Beretta every time. Every time. <laughs> well, shoot, when you're logging, you know, close to 15 miles a day, the, those pounds can really add up. 
Absolutely, absolutely. You definitely don't want a big old uh, heavy shotgun over your shoulder when you're when you're covering that many miles. All right, Ryan. Well, we're getting towards getting towards the end here. I really really enjoyed this conversation, but I want to get I want to get your take on it. You know, as somebody that's that's certainly experienced in in hunting quail, specifically in West Texas. You know, let's say there's somebody out there listening. I've never been down to Texas. There are others, of course, in the same position. Let's say there's somebody. Maybe they're down there in Texas and and they they're not much of an upland hunter, but they want to get into it. Where where do you what advice right. would you give to somebody trying to get started in in what you do? Um, Nick, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I have had a couple of, um, guys come out and, and, and they've, um, brought their wives with them and their wives say have been, been new to the sport. Um, I, I would probably say, um, that, that hunting wild scaled quail as, as a first time hunt, um, is probably not, not going to be the, the best option just because you're going to be walking a lot of ground. And, and typically, I think these, these guys are flushing a little further out than, than Bob White. Um, you know, I always think that young hunters or, or new hunters um, need, need to be treated, and I don't want to make the sound derogatory, but they need to be treated like, you, like you're, you're training a new dog, right, a young dog in that you really want that success on the hunt to, to really build that confidence and that motivation um, going forward. Um, I think preserves where, where you have pen raised birds are fantastic resources for um, new and inexperienced hunters um, to get out there um, have birds that are going to flush really close and maybe not fly as fast or as far. And, and so I think that's probably the best advice I could, I could give, um, to, to new hunters trying to get, trying to get into the sport, um, you know, and, and ensure that you're going to have that, that initial success, I would say. Certainly. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's very sound advice, Ryan. And I think you hit on the, on, on a, on a great point in that, Early success. Early success is certainly something that I have heard, you know, it's important when we're talking about new hunters and, and that early success can take different forms, different fashion, but, but it's an important right. part of the hunt. And for somebody, Absolutely. To, for somebody to eventually, you know, be as passionate as, as you or I are, you know, it starts with that, starts with that first hunt. And, and there are certain things you can control about the environment that I think can, can lead to, can lead to that passion. So talking about passion, what, you know, we talked, we've talked about a lot of, you know, the, the joy and, and the interest you have in upland hunting, but what, what truly drives you towards upland hunting? What gets you out there every day, Ryan? What, what do you love about upland hunting? Nick, I think, um, you know, upland hunting for me, you know, first and foremost is is the dogs. Uh, I, I just, uh, you know, absolutely love watching um, um, pointing dogs run around. Um, the second thing um, for upland hunting, you know, I really love the, the camaraderie. Um, you know, you get to walk out there and you get to, to, to chat to some really good people while you're hunting. Um, you know, you get to uh, give each other a bit of stick on, on missed shots and things. Um, and, and, and to me, that's that's what it's about. Um, you know, it's always just been different. I mean, you know, I hunted deer up in um, Illinois and um, 
you know, to be honest, I just didn't really enjoy sitting in a tree stand by myself. <laughs> you know, I, I very much enjoy walking around and, and chatting with people. And I think upland bird hunting brings all those aspects together. Um, you, you know, you're getting the exercise, you're getting the good conversation between friends or, uh, you know, old friends and new friends. You're getting to to watch the dogs. Um, you, you're getting to to chase tough little birds around the landscape. And uh, it, it's just, um, you know, to me, it's a, it's a package deal. I, I don't know where else um, you would find that. Um, you know, everybody's got their little niche and their passion and and uh, th this is it for me. And uh, from this conversation, I, I think uh, you, you you feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. That's 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 great great perspective, and and certainly certainly one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the Project Upland podcast. Well, it's been fun. Where can people find out more about quail hunting in Texas and West Texas uh, quail outfitters? Um, Nick, we have a, a website. It's real easy to remember. It's just WestTexasQuailOutfitters.com. Um, alternatively, by the same name, we're on Facebook. Um, all of our contact information is on there. And if, if guys just want to call up and chat and, and have us give out um, some information, um, please, they can feel free to, to call, email, text, whatever, uh, whatever is easiest. Excellent. Sounds good, Ryan. I really appreciate your time this evening. Thank you for joining us on the Project Upland podcast. And if there's anything we can do for you in the future, don't hesitate to let us know. Likewise, Nick. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to uh, chat with you guys. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, have you out in uh, Texas hunting scaled quail sometime soon. I'd love to do that, Ryan. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. Bye-bye. All right. That's a wrap, everybody. I'm your host, Nick Larson. I would like to thank you all for listening to this edition of the show. As always, this episode of the Project Upland Podcast was brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. We'd love to hear from you. Comments, questions, concerns, suggestions. Hit us up at projectupland.com or email me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, share this podcast episode, and subscribe. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.